listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us here this evening. I am Nikila Matabushi, um, a practicing architect based here in Melbourne, and I'm also currently a Monash Innovation Fellow within the Department of Architecture. Um, and this is a self-directed, action-based research and teaching position there. So the focus of my research is around rethinking and revolutionising the role of architecture and design um, in bushfire recovery through integrating legitimate co-creation and interdisciplinary approaches to our practice. And, and this is what led me to um, meet the three collaborators that have joined us here tonight. And before I introduce them, uh, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and the Yalakut Wilam Bunwurrung as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. So these are two of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation on which uh, our city, Melbourne, is situated. So I pay my respects to their land, water, their ancestors and their elders past, present and into the future. And I also wanted to acknowledge the tr traditional custodians of the various lands on which all of you who've joined us here tonight um, may come from. Uh, as well as those who might watch a recording of this event, as well as those who are participating. Daniel is speaking to us from Gunaikanai country. Justin and Christy are speaking to us from places that are originally home to many diverse Aboriginal cultures and language groups. Um, it's important to remember that these are contested places and this contestation is a direct impact of the colonisation of this country. And... Um, it's especially important to, uh, you know, reflect on this during weeks like this one um, where we must continue to create space to deeply consider, you know, how we identify what it is to be Australian. So, without further ado, I would love to introduce three people um, that on a personal level really made me look forward to the weeks I knew I would be meeting with them last year. Um, you all made Zoom meetings really exciting um, because of the inspirational and individual insights you bring forward. So I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to share um, our growing collaboration tonight and also thanks to Jen and Molly for um, offering us a platform to do that. And so we have in the flesh here Christy Breyer. Christy is a practising architect who lives in Malakuta and is assisting her community with various recovery projects uh, while navigating the rebuild of her own home and office after losing them in the 2019 to 20 fires. Um, she's the director of Christie Bryer Architects, uh, as well as a collaborator with Richard Stampton Architects here in Melbourne. And you've also taught sessionally in landscape architecture and urban design at RMIT. Yep. Um, on the screens, we have Daniel Mil Miller. Daniel is a Jeringuyuan man, currently working as General Manager on Country for Gunaikanai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation, or GLAWAC, as it's affectionately known, uh, which represents the Gunaikanai traditional owners in Gippsland. Daniel's work supports uh, the Gunaikanai in progressing towards self-determination through diverse culture and country projects. Lastly, we have Justin Leonard, who is a research leader in bushfire adaptation at the CSIRO. Justin's dedicated over two decades of his research career to understanding how bushfire risk to life and the built environment can be better managed, especially from a socio-technical perspective. Right, so, so given the, the week that this conversation lands within, not to mention the themes at the heart of this project, I thought it might be useful to put um, bushfire-proof buildings, bunker designs, regulatory code changes and those sorts of topics aside just for the moment. Um, you know, I acknowledge that there is a big place for that conversation, um, but I also wanted to highlight that 
seems to be the default way that the conversation goes from within the architecture and, and built environment industries. Um, but parallel to this is increasing acknowledgement of a fairly ancient practice that caring for rather than combating country might be the way forward towards adapting to bushfires. So on a macro level, this relates to the obvious challenge of the shifting climate, but, you know, with a closer lens, simply the day-to-day -day care. And so, you know, with the, within this notion of bushfire adaptation, burning of country, you know, as far as what I've learnt so far, stands as a historical, cultural, spiritual and technical process that's inherently about humans being adapted to a landscape that requires fire. And so, Daniel, we've spoken at length about the complexities around practicing this and the increasing perception of it being a magic bullet. And so I was wondering if you could share a little about Glauac's position and responsibility around cultural burning as a process, um, you know, something that's inherently about caring for country, but, you know, what the implications are of this in reality and in context to your work. Sure. Thanks, Nikki, and um, good evening, everyone. Even though we can't see you, it, uh, it's good to be here, and, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk today and hopefully have a, have some discussion with people later. Um, I'll just start by recognising the elders of the Gunnokana people and uh, and uh, that have passed and that are present and, and recognise their stewardship of the land. And I think um, it's a good place to start, Nikki. I reckon. Uh, you know, since for, for the last 12 or oh, perhaps 14 months, I suppose, um, you know, the concept of cultural burning and cool burning gets talked about a lot and it gets a lot of interest and, and we've had um, a lot of people sort of tapping on the door wanting to, to hear about it and, and uh, like it's a new thing and, and hear about um, and there's been media stories about how it's uh, saved town or, or a house or whatever, which, is, which are really good stories. But, um, but the, the position really for traditional owners, and, and, and I'm speaking generally because, you know, no one person speaks for all traditional owners, is that um, it's always been a part of country and, it, um, and it's, you know, and it's, it's just uh, it's as intrinsic to, to a healthy country as, um, as water and people and, uh, you know, and, and, and all the biodiversity. So, so it's the traditional owner... Um, Approach is to is to make it um, a part of of, uh, of managing country every day, you know, and not literally every day, but um, just as regular as can be. And uh, you know, you mentioned before that it um, the word combative, and, and it's it's sort of it's sort of the way that I guess that we think of uh, how fire is approached, fire in the landscape is approached now. It's um, it is all about. Uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, a, a combative approach. You either um, forcing it in or sort of forcing it out, and and uh, and it's it's never never a relaxed and enjoyable kind of experience that it should be. Um, so for, for Glowak, um, we're taking we're probably taking a slower um, journey than a lot of other mobs, but but that's okay because we, as, as I mentioned, it, it is um, it is a, a sort of a, a very personal. And um, you know, uh, aspect of um, how people feel about their country, and uh, and I've you know the state have been very uh, interested and in, and mostly helpful in in supporting our fire journey and and reintroducing fire into the landscape as we as we would like to. Um, we do have some staff who uh, are a part of the um, the the state's. Sort of fire response team, and and they participated for the for the full sort of whatever it was two and a half months um, last summer. Uh, but I guess alongside that, where our journey is, and, and the, which we're saying is a bit slower, is sort of about reconnecting and giving people the time and the um, you know the space to to as a community, as an individual and a community to reconnect with what fire means and. Um, you know, on the east coast, it's, it's sort of there's a longer term of disassociation with culture. So, you know, in a general sense, so we really do have to make sure that uh, 
community members aren't pressured into um, doing or feeling something that um, that they're not ready for because they just haven't had the chance to to practice it themselves. So our so our approach has been to reinitiate a um, a fire knowledge holder group, which is um, generally sort of a closed group, but we we do invite state and other partners in at certain times uh, to to talk about it to to um, determine what some priorities are and to and then to um, plan to activate and and be active in with those priorities and um, and it's all about getting people involved in the best way we can. So we've so the state did a really good job doing a culture fire strategy um, uh, in 2019, and we're now doing our own cultural fire strategy, which which is all about that about getting people involved and and connected in a way that's safe. Um, it's about determining our level of um, training and competency that 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 isn't in com, uh, in a isn't against. It doesn't go against the state's approach, but hopefully, sort of runs alongside it, and uh, and will allow more of our community to to be involved. Um, and you know, and, and I see a future where we're reintroducing fire in a back in the landscape in a way that um, is, you know, where it stays probably only up to your knees, kind of height, and and uh, and is is manageable. Um, you know, doesn't do all the things that we we all know and, and recognise that the last fires have done in terms of impacting on biodiversity and impacting on catchments and impacting on, on community. And I guess just a final comment for this question, we certainly don't expect it to be a situation that was, in the, you know, in place 300 years ago. It, it is a it is one that, that um, combines all the aspects of, you know, of our modern world as well. As I guess traditional knowledge, um, and whilst I say that fire knowledge group is a, is fairly closed, it the um, we hope that the outcomes, you know, and in the longer term, as we get more confident and, and more practiced, that uh, that more people will be involved, and uh, and it's you know because we're not really talking about secret business here. We're just we're just wanting to make sure that we are happy and confident and comfortable with with what we're practicing. Thanks, Daniel. Um, Christy, you've probably got a lot to say about that. Um, you know, you and your partner are, are acutely aware of the risks to do with living in the bush um, and were prepared, um, but also have a very raw lived experience to talk to. So what are your thoughts on some of Daniel's comments? Yeah, that's right, Nikki. Um, I mean, we have a deep love of where we live and we also have an inherent... Um, acceptance of the risk of living in an environment like that. Um, and because of that, we, ha we take a really active role in the landscape, both of our property and the surrounding area through, um, through doing regular burns, um, slashing, and then something that I like to call gardening by subtraction, which is basically just intervening very gently through the landscape to keep the balance um, we try to we try to balance the fire mitigating the fire risk, along with um, conservation and biodiversity. Um, we you know we have a uh, the glossy black cockatoo, which is a threatened species that um, breeds and feeds um, uh, you know within meters of where my house stood. So we're we're very protective of that, and we try to balance that all the time. Um, 50 metres away from where my house stood, or less than 50 metres actually, is the Crowaging Along National Park, um, which has effectively been unmanaged or mismanaged for over 200 years. Um, and that's partly through a lack of listening to Indigenous uh, people and enabling them to be involved in those practices the continuation of their culture and their practices, and also a lack of commitment of um, funds and resources. Like, Coraging Along is a vast piece of forest um, and, you know, the, the people on the ground to carry out the work to sort of maintain it is, you know, negligible, basically. Um, so, the, you know, after the fires, there's this marked difference between... Um, 
those two landscapes which sit right next to each other and, um, you know, the fire in the National Park, which is the direction it came in, um, is decimated. And once it's onto our property that we've been managing, um, it, it, it is, it's different. I mean, it's burnt, obviously, but a lot of the fire didn't get into the canopy and it's recovering really well. Um, and the diversity is actually staggering. It's been beautiful to watch the recovery. Um, so, I mean, I kind of understand that people are probably thinking, so how come your house burnt down? <laughs> um, and so our house is a very different proposition. It was not built for fire. It is a, you know, early 80s um, timber fibre shack, um, timber structure elevated off the ground, big old dry deck around it um, and a pretty poorly maintained, um, no one lived in it for five years before we bought it and it was in pretty poor shape. So we had our plans and permits all ready to go to renovate it in February of 2020. <laughs> um, so those plans are now um, literally have gone up in smoke. <laughs> um, uh, and now we're in a position of rebuilding um, with all of this in mind, and and we're now being asked to um, clear just over three acres of land around where we want to build, um, and to um, and to build to a lesser bell rating than than what I had designed for, um, which seems to me um, both you know environmentally completely irresponsible um, as well as completely illogical. <laughs> so, you know, we're in this position, I'm in this position and, and speaking today and the four of us have been talking over the last six months about, so how do you adapt from this experience, both personally and as an architect? Um, how do I use this to adapt for my future of living in this landscape? Um, and you know, I've had to kind of ask the question of what is it to adapt? Um, and, and to me it is observing what's happened, uh, acknowledging what's happened, interrogating it, and then whatever has worked, replicate that and strengthen that. And what hasn't worked is where you need to you know, that's where you need to make your changes. So to have this situation where clearly the, the changes that need to happen is in my built environment, my, my house itself, and that's, you know, some obvious things like building at ground level, building with robust um, non-combustible materials, rammed earth, um, you know, those, the, those types of things, minimising windows on the fire risk side, all of those types of things. But... So they're the obvious ones, but that got me thinking about what are the, that's sort of the middle part of where we need to be thinking and, and having the conversation. We need to be looking at the the macro, you know, level of that which Nikki talked about just before. We can't ignore that climate change is um, playing a role in in the intensity of fires and the way we. Uh, combat them um, doesn't work anymore. You know, we, we don't have the resources and the, and the capability to fight fires like we had last summer or even Black Saturday fires 11 years ago. So we're on the back foot and we need to be um, imaginative and we need to be talking across disciplines, um, coming up with, you know, things outside of what we already know. And I think architects and scientists and artists and cultural leaders are the perfect people to be having those conversations. We're creative, we're imaginative, we can think outside the square. The other end of the spectrum is the day-to-day. -day. You don't live in an environment like that on high fire alert all the time. You're not sitting there waiting for a bushfire to come every weekend. <laughs> um, and so it's important to balance um, this adaption, this idea of resilience and adaption to people, to real people and living a daily life, um, you know, a concrete bunker 
might be good for some people maybe, but it's not, it's not realistic as a solution. We need to think outside that. Um, and we need to think of the little minutiae of things. You can have a Bell 40 house or a Flame Zone house, but the day-to-day life of living in that house, um, you know, I, I, I've asked myself, you know, do, or ask, ask yourselves about your own houses, you know, do your shoes pile up at the front door? Um, you know, are your surfboards in the, in the carport or your boat? Um, do you leave the bathroom window ajar when you go to work for the morning? Or do you close everything up? You know, these are things that can create a weak spot within what is considered a, you know, strong, robust building design. So we have to factor in, and again, I think architects are in a perfect role to really interrogate this and include this in the design, not just from this tectonic solutions, but actually just um, thinking about the everyday. How do people live? And how do we help them live in a way that is more safe, just that becomes part of the way they live, rather than having to, you know, when you've only got a few minutes or half an hour or an hour to leave your house, I can tell you, you don't think of everything. <laughs> you're, you're in a rush and things get, you know, you miss things. Um, and, you know, that can be the difference between your house standing and not standing. So, yeah, for me, this idea of resilience and adaption, you know, I think architects can play a really critical role um, in building buildings as well, but I think we can get in much earlier than that and um, really start to tease out these ideas and have these conversations, as I said, with artists, with scientists, with each other um, and just start trying to think we've got to do things differently. The way we've been doing it isn't working anymore. And, you know, we're constantly told that fire is part of the Australian landscape. Well, we're not dealing with it very well. We're not very literate in how to work with it. We're, we're just constantly, um, we're on the back foot and we need to get in front of it. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um sort of, yeah, the collectivist approach and the community-led agenda is something, you know, I want to talk about as well. Um, and maybe Justin can kind of lead us down that path. But while we're on the topic of adaptation, you know, bushfire adaptation, I think what we're getting at is it's a really complex proposition. And, you know, Justin, like, we, we've talked at length about sort of, and you with sort of surplus of two decades of experience know that, you know, deep collaborations required between research and local people. Um, but, you know, the deeper you go, the more you understand that there are so many issues that come up, um, you know, localised views, perceptions, biases, um, you know, various barriers towards why sort of an adaptive measure might not work. Um, and one thing, I, you know, I often think about in my work is the socio-economic aspect. And this is kind of why I'm really fascinated with your approach with the socio-technical and in, in my world sort of socio-spatial because it really unites social impact with any technical or design resolution and sort of interrogates whether it's going to work or not in the real world at the front end. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could yes. on that a little. <coughs> yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that. I guess um, I, my research career sort of worked with various um, government agencies and community groups and... Um, private industry groups and I guess a lot of that work's been sort of pushing a particular silo along that might be um, working on better planning provisions or um, how we describe how to manage the landscape in an effective way and then we move over to a bit of house design and then a bit of community engagement. And I guess um, it didn't take long into my research career to really realise that um, pushing each of those silos along a little bit further wasn't necessarily even making uh, having a net effect of making things more adaptive. Um, and in fact, in many ways, those silos even grew apart even further as you pushed them as individual silos. And um, really, it came around to the realisation that bringing the silos together as an integrated process um, was really the only way to move in a in a logical way towards adaptation and a more resilient community. 
Um, and that meant that the community was actually at the centre of the hub of learning and change. So if the community didn't understand a technical solution or reasoning behind a change that needed to happen in the landscape, um, the, the process that was trying to be forced upon them or imposed um, had little to no chance of, of being effective, even if it was imposed, because it wouldn't be understood, maintained and taken forward and melded into a holistic community um, use of that um, that regulation or tool that, that was brought, brought in. So I think it really does take a big step back for not only the community, but the, the agencies, the government agencies involved in trying to help communities um, deal with their risk. And that, and that we all think, what is the, uh, you know, what is this end goal of adaptation and what does it take to, to, to be in that adapted state? And then what are all the key steps we need to take to get to that state? And I guess if you if you sort of put your imaginary hats on and say, look, if if some if my neighbour rang me up and said a fire's just um, come through and impacted our town and our street and it's burnt um, right up to um, and through our neighbourhood, if you had any fear that your house was burnt or lost in that, then you're really not in an adapted state yet. You really have to. Um, have already um, moved beyond the fear of fire and know that your house, your backyard um, actually is fine in, in, a, in any fire event that it could face and it actually um, is impacted and, and improved by fire, which is a natural part in the landscape. So that's the ultimate um, adaptation um, place to arrive at. And then we think back and think about regulation and, and, and our fear of fire and our sort of uh, lack of um, direct engagement in the, the natural processes of fire in the landscape and even the litigious side of it where um, being an arsonist or being or having a fire get out of control and cause damage is a deeply legally implied issue. Um, we really need to... Um, Unpack everything and then and then move forward. So back to the back to the individual and their knowledge base. That is absolutely central. So I really applaud people like Christy that that um, know actually what that adaptation path is and is constantly on that learning path and have the tools and the social networks and the connection to country to to move along that path. And I think it really takes that. You can't sort of take a few pieces of the puzzle and, and hope you're there or you can't have just build a nice new shiny house to the current regulations and think you're there. It's, um, it's a much deeper journey and, and a rewarding journey because it brings us all closer to the true value systems and the processes that are unfolding in the country and the, and the role that fire has in, in that broader process. Thanks, Justin. Um, yeah, so back to this idea of the collectivist approach, and it's something we were talking about at length this morning um, over our three-hour chai, <laughs> Christy, and kind of this, you were talking a little bit about, um, you know, sort of being left to your own devices to sort out your property, and kind of, not that that's necessarily what's happened exactly, but this idea that it's kind of up to individuals, kind of going off what Justin's saying, to to manage their lot and their house. But you yourself know, like, there's such an interrelationship and a synergy between your house and your, your you know, your, your property, the tidal boundary, the adjacent national park, um, and how the way forward ideally would be this collectivist approach. But then that means that what gets designed and built on a site needs to work in synergy with what's going on with the national park management which works hand in hand with the problematic nature of tidal boundaries and that our responsibility stops at the edge of a tidal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's something that um, I can get a bit passionate about sometimes. <laughs> it's, there's a massive onus on the individual landowners 
to um, meet the regulations that, you know, they're prescriptive. Um, and then the landscape around you, the broader landscape around you is completely unmanaged, um, is a difficult proposition when you... And then on top of that, when you're asked to do management on your land, which makes no sense, when that is also not being done in your, you know, over your fence line. Um, so I, I think, I mean, this is just my opinion, but I think that a way forward is we we need to be um, collaborating a lot more across the agencies and the de and the various departments. I think Justin um, noted, um, spoke to this a little bit about as well as is sort of demystifying, I guess, in a way, or taking some of the fear out of fire. Daniel was talking also earlier about this, you know, it's enjoyable when you do, when you, when you use fire properly, um, not, not just to talk, not just to make it all about fire, but we have this, we have this fearful relationship with it um, from my cultural background. Um, and that's the, that's where we're going wrong right from the start. So I think, Working together with landowners, with CFA, with Parks Victoria, with the various agencies, um, cultural knowledge scientists, and having people understand more what that means. And I mean, I was just thinking about it in the car on the way down here. Like when you're a CFA member, when you first join, you do a, a thing called minimum skills, which gives you the basic skills to turn out to a to a, an event, a fire event, say. And I was thinking, oh. Why don't, say in a place like Malakuta, why doesn't everyone have minimum skills? <laughs> and suddenly that takes some of that fear away and enables you to start engaging with, with the landscape around you and, and, and these natural phenomena that are going to take place in a different way, in a different light. And so I think these types of thoughts, I think, and conversations about them are kind of important to have and see, yeah, where, where can we give people more knowledge. And, and it feels like, Daniel, this is what the main goal of Glawak's work is. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's, it's to, so, you know, the disassociation with country and culture has been, um, you know, been uh, and over a long period of time. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's a really, uh, it's a, it's a really big burden for people to carry that they that they have that, and, and because it is such an important part of Trishlana's lives, and so to create a space where they can, you know, people can learn about something like this, which you can't, you know, normally and easily do otherwise, and you know, is important for us, and then, um, uh, and in a way that's safe, you know, for the, for themselves and for, you know, for the landscape and whatever. Um, yeah, that's really important. But and I think, like we were just saying, then the um, the training the training part is really important, and uh, we think. And it's, but I don't know if we've necessarily got the model right and so well. And the and the um, and that basic um, training cover is you know is really important for people to to be able to you know generally know how to be safe around the fire. And and I, I agree that that. That um, there should be, you know, a wider take up of that, or, or whatever. And we're we're sort of looking at um, creating our our own version of that, which meets the same needs as as a sort of conventional basic training, but but also allows Trisha learners to, you know, to um, to to stretch in their own way and to to get involved in in their own way and 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 have some have uh, a greater say and and have a greater involvement. Um, and it, you know, might be have a women's focus, or it might have a men's focus, or it might have a focus on a particular area. Um, it's it's sort of just we're sort of seeing as as not necessarily one size fits all. Yes, and so, you know, talking about this sort of going back to one of Justin's points, you know, about this community-led agenda. Um, you know, it seems ideal and, you know, even the state agency responsible for the recovery, Bushfire Recovery Victoria, have quite clearly stated that that's their bottom line um, in the recovery frameworks um, that were released uh, last year. Um, but, Justin, going back to sort of this ideal of, of having deep engagement with local people, do you agree that um, there's a sort of dearth or lack of 
action-based methods that are tried and tested to actually adequately engage local people. And there's a, there's a gap to fill between disciplines and, and people on the ground, basically. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, that the professionals that, that hope to build a system and engage um, have a, a lot of work to do before those um, approaches to community um, work effectively across all communities. And when I say all communities, I mean communities that are already quite well socially networked and integrated and have a connection to land right through to the ones that don't. And... Um, I guess when you delve into each sort of individual community, you find you have a really broad demographic of attitudes. And, um, but in, in some communities, the demographic that are connected and have a body of knowledge and are engaging and, and disseminating that through the rest of the community um, uh, are, are real, are real um, uh, beacons of, of hope and points where you can get a huge way um, with some extra additional um, professional engagement to help catalyse that um, to, to occur at a greater rate. But other communities, um, it, it, you really feel like where do you start, how do you start this off, um, how do you get the community to become more inherently integrated and, and you know, it just can't... Um, uh, you can't underestimate the the need for that um, social network to be there in some form in the beginning. Did you have anything to add to that coming from both perspectives, Christy? Um, well, only that um, for those that don't know, in Mallacoota, we've, uh, before BRV came on board, we decided as a community to have a community-led recovery. We decided to, rather than um, basically have, uh, you know, local shire and state government tell us how we will recover, that we will tell them what we need and that and ask for their support through that. So um, it's a really slow process and it, I think that is a challenge for the agencies because they're much more um, outcome driven and, um, you know, they want those media moments and things like that. But the, the recovery process is really slow and particularly when it does come from community. It's, um, you know, we have 800 members. We formed an association. There's 800 members of the community that um, are the stakeholders of our own recovery. And so it's 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 complicated. It's, I mean, we're about to, in a couple of months' time, Nikki and I are starting on a process of, of seeing how we can engage with the community on that and trying to, um, you know, uh, help develop some techniques for them to yeah. be able to express whatever it is that they want to move forward with. I mean, it's a challenge. It's really difficult. Absolutely, and I think obviously what we're finding is that that process has to be designed in and of itself. And so, like, you know, we already know that obviously well-designed spaces make people feel great and happy, but I think that, um, you know, um, the trauma-informed context of recovery, it, puts, it puts forward a really different challenge. And so, like, what I've begun to sort of understand is, is that, or maybe question is, you know, is there something about the actual process towards these built and tangible things that could be powerful and aid recovery just as much as a specific rebuild project um, could be as well. And that could that journey actually facilitate, um, you know, uh, moving on, you know, and moving forward rather. Because, you know, as architects, obviously, we become really good at client um, and stakeholder engagement, but I, don't, I think community engagement in the true sense of the word is quite a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's not it's never one size fits all, and that's the critical thing. It's it is about, um, as Justin said, you know, there's many and varied views. You know, Malakuta is a tight knit community, but there's by no means we do not agree on everything and the way forward. So it's really, um, yeah, it's important to create as many ways that people can explore ideas and and 
and talk and there, and we have a kind of motto, I guess, of do no harm. So if there's any position within the community that, you know, any person that feels like something's moving in a direction that's causing them harm or distress, that, that means we need to talk about it more, it means we need to workshop it more, we need to um, test that out more. There's, there's absolutely no hurry in recovery. It's, it's it, and I met, well, it's the same with, you know, talking about landscape management. Um, it's not a rush thing, it's a, it's a, the journey is the important part, you know, it's the, that's where the learning is and that's where the, the joy is ultimately and the connections and all of those things. So absolutely the, before thinking about outcomes of buildings, the process, and I've seen it firsthand. Um, I mean, we've experienced, I've experienced it with collaborating with Nikki and it is absolutely part of the recovery and architects can play a really critical role in that where architects are brilliant at facilitating people of disparate thoughts and ideas and, you know, moving in a direction that's that towards, the, you know, the common outcome or the positive goal, whatever it might be. So our skill, that's where our skill set is, you know, not building buildings. Our skill set is in getting to building the building, I think. Yeah, that's great. Did you have something to add to that, Justin? Yeah, yeah. I think... Um the, the community-led um, uh, recovery coming from Malakuta is, to me, it's actually re community-led recovery and adaptation all, all in one, which is which is rare because a lot of community, a lot of recovery efforts are trying to get lives back to normal and a back to normal is sort of a, a race back to where you were before you were impacted with little um, with little consideration of why the collapse happened in the first place, and it, it's it's really wonderful to see a community that realizes and respects the fact that it actually needs to evolve out of um, the process that it was just impacted by. Um, because the, the grieving process so often pushes people's in, people and communities into a I just want to get my life back um, back on track um, process, which which really does push adaptation aside temporarily and for, for some date in the future. And I think the and, and and I'd have to say it is hard. It's hard to try to put your life back together and adapt. And what I would encourage um, the people, say, in this audience that um, haven't been impacted by these fires, think about all the things you can do to imagine adaptation if one day you were impacted um, and what could you do now in terms of planning at a house or a community scale or, a, or even larger than that scale to how would you put back a township and a community and your own house at all those scales if you were impacted. And having all of those thought experiments and conversations through community is an incredible one while you've got the mental and emotional capacity to do it, which is before a disaster happens. And I think that's really interesting, Justin, because one thing that, um, you know, was talked about a lot was sort of the reduction in loss of life compared to 2009. But no one really talked about the, I think it was over 450 people that died due to smoke inhalation, for instance. And so to sort of see ourselves, if we, if, we're, if we live in urban areas, as detached from the issue or only sort of marginally impacted by the issue, you know, it's becoming increasingly problematic as a, as a, as a mindset, really. Um, and so I think that's kind of also, I, I think I, I really appreciate the way you've directed the audience to think about it as well, because... It, it does involve us all, um, and especially when we put the shift in climate into the question and our role within that, then, you know, it's all part of that conversation, sort of sort of all interlinked, which is probably obvious um, to, to state. Um, yeah, um, I don't really know how we're going for time, but Christy, did you want to add anything else, or, or Daniel, even? Go for it, Daniel. I'm talked out. Thanks, Christy, and... Nikki, uh, 
look, I think there's really good stuff being talked about here and, and, um, and it, you know, there's lots of different views and approaches and, and like it's been said several times that everyone's affected so differently. I, you know, I really like the way that you're talking about uh, you know, the skills that people like architects bring to, you know, to, um, to help, help people with sort of the whole perhaps unclear ideas in their mind, you know, to, 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 to bring it together. And, um, and all that stuff's really important here, I think. And, and um, you know, and seeing, and I sort of, I'm, I'm here to sort of give a traditional overview, I suppose, and, and that's to, uh, and, and I think it's what Justin and Christy are sort of saying about, you know, we've, we've said the, the landscape approach, so it is really um, look outside the, the boundary of, of what you're, perhaps what you're responsible for and, and, um, and try and help everything fit together because it, it, it does fit together and it should fit together better than perhaps what it has been. Um, I've been involved in fires in Gippsland for 20 years now. I came to Gippsland in about just uh, 2002, just before the 2003 fires, which were the biggest ones in Gippsland since 39. And, and um, so it, it is heartbreaking to see us go around this roundabout um, every sort of whatever it is, four or five years or something. Um, so I think... Uh, you know, I guess we're all hopeful that we can continue to improve on how we're, how we're looking at this in the future. And I reckon together we can. That's all. Thanks, Daniel. Well, thanks, Justin and Christy. Maybe uh, if, we've, if we've got time, we can take a few questions. Hi, um, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and knowledge today. It was really interesting. I just would like to know whether you have um, come across any successful examples of interdisciplinary approaches with artists, cultural leaders, architects, etc., um, whether locally or internationally. Do they exist? <laughs> Thanks, Shell. Um, um, I'm still looking. So I'm still, fellowship is ongoing. I'm definitely not going to say that I'm inventing the wheel yet. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, I think Justin can probably comment on that. Have you? <laughs> can you answer that question? Um, um, yeah, so at a very small scale, so sort of at a streetscape scale that has the, the relevant social networks and things and then people have really come in and focused on that as a peculiar um, ultra-adaptive or a region that's got ultra-adaptive potential. So it's happened, but it hasn't really happened in in scale. Um, and I guess the, that's, that's the real challenge now about how to bring it to scale and how to work with many aspects of, a, of an individual community. And now that I've had a moment to think about it a bit, like there's, you know, there's examples like Strathewan um, during the 2009 fires, a small town, and I mean, it was very, it was community-led, and they did, they did lots of little projects to assist with the reconstruction, but simultaneously sort of psychosocial recovery as well. And I know that um, Steve Pascoe, who was a leader there, like, he kind of assisted Malakuta in the beginning. But that's, like, but like Justin says, it, it's, not a, it's not to scale necessarily, like, it was, it worked for that little town. Um, but when you look at the broadly um, the sort of the um, lessons learnt from 2009, for instance, there was, there was a lot of examples of the sort of top-down approach dominating um, the decision-making process. And, um, and I know, Justin, you worked on numerous projects across that year and sort of the command and control approach sort of dominating the recovery model. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's not to scale. There's heaps of little examples, but not big ones yet. So, hmm. Hi, um, I, my name's Jennifer Fraser and I've got, um, I suppose, a long background in state government and a long background in interest in East Gippsland and I'm actually on the board of the East Gippy CMA. Um, and it struck me that there's, I think I've got a comment rather than a question, but it struck me that there's similarity between what you're saying, Christy, and what Dan's saying about the need for people to 
learn and adapt and feel safe with fire and for Glowak sort of annex practitioners to sort of work out their approach to fire so it sort of works for them, um, just like the Malakuta community needs to do that. But I can see a tension between that and how state government runs its business and how it likes to announce grants for bushfire recovery. So I know that there's a grant, for example, for restoring black, black, uh, red-tailed black cockatoo habitat up near Malakuta. And um, it, it seems to me that you're talking about a slower process and state government is often talking about a shorter process where they give out the money and then it's given out and then it's gone and they like to see a product at the end of it and then announce some more. And I'm not sure really where I'm going with that, but I think I'm agreeing with you and seeing um, a similarity between what you're saying about the community um, and it trying to work out how it comes to a view about what works for it. Um, similarly with GLOWAC and then um, state government and the agencies needing to deliver because that's their job too. So, yeah, absolutely. That's my and, speech. And, <laughs> absolutely. Thanks for that. And it's, um, I think part of it is trust and like, you know, the state government our, or any big bureaucratic entity may have to accept that they're, they're not the right people to lead these things, um, that, they're not, that, that it's not their role, and to trust communities to know what is best for them because what's best for... And, and communities within those communities as well. So what's good for Malakuta, for example, might not be good for Sarsfield or Buchan or anywhere else up the eastern coast of Australia that is dealing with these issues now as well. Um, and so I guess that notion of going slower perhaps, and as I said, there is that tension, it doesn't sit well within the normal um, operations of state governments and, and local governments. Um, and I think that's, you know, BRV are learning that process now and it's a, it's a while away before that's gonna find um, a happy medium somewhere. But I think at least with Bushfire Recovery Victoria, the fact that they're having that conversation now and they're trying to sit back and let things happen and be the support rather than top down. Um, and so there'll be times where the community wants to move faster on something or slower or, you know, just it's, it's, the, it's all those little nuances that a one-size-fits-all a, a one state government booklet that says this is how you recover or this is how you mitigate fire risk or this is how you do whatever, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so we need to stop doing that and break, break what we know, basically, and try something else. Um, there's no harm in trying something else, testing other ideas, other ways of doing things. We don't have to always just as Daniel said, go around this roundabout again. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, certainly I hear you know, some people that are desperate to have their houses rebuilt and they're not really, they're just not ready. Just, they might be ready for a house, but they're not really ready for what this means, rebuilding. Uh, also, um, for people who didn't hear that, it was just uh, uh, the idea of some people are ready faster than other others, and that's true. So there's that nuance with that as well. But there's also, and something that I think, again, architects are well-placed to comment on, is this idea of um, place. So when you lose it, practically everything that you own, your, your sense of identity and your sense of your place in the world goes with that. And that's a really challenging um, place to be in, basically. And then on top of that, this year with COVID, we were all separated from each other. We're all told to stay at home, um, work from home. What, what does that mean when you don't have a home anymore? You know, those sorts of things became really important. Um, and I guess these are these little nuances of listening and that idea of deep engagement rather than just kind of thinking, you have a solution for every, that, you know, there's 123 houses lost in Malakuta, 123 of us don't feel the same way about it. 
So where is that deep engagement with every single one of those people? What do you need is a really important question rather than assuming what someone needs or how someone's going to respond. Um, and I think that's a lesson to learn and, and, you know, to the other question before about collaboration across disciplines, I think that's part of that. It's about garnering knowledge from each other and, I mean, just the four of us having conversations over the past few months, you're constantly learning from other people. Um, you're, you know, obviously you learn from your colleagues within your discipline, but as soon as you go outside, suddenly you see things differently in a different way all the time. And, and you can then adapt that to your discipline to move it forward or work together to move it forward. And, and I, think that is the, I think that is the way forward. I think that's how we, how we you know, try, try again. <laughs> Daniel, as, you know, as an sort of independent corporation but has close ties with government in order to sort of mobilise the work that you want to do, um, do you have much to say to that question? I think um, I don't want to sort of just re-say stuff that we've already spoke about, and, but um, look, like I, I'm as entitled as everyone to be frustrated with the state in in some of this, but I have to say the approach to to us has been um, one of genuine interest. Um, the frustration is, you know, might come that. Um, you know, when we're we're not sort of bending and flexing as as they kind of expect, and and I, I sort of get it. You know, I've sort of I've been on that side of the fence as well. That they that um you know, that there's they've got some methods which um you know which which a lot of good people think you know is the best that they you know, the best they've got to offer. Which um you know, but uh, but sort of having it, having an open mind and, and being and being interested in 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 um, other ways of, you know, managing country. I think I'm, I'm sort of sensing a genuine interest in that from from a lot of parts of the state. And then, um, uh, when the pressure's on and and um, and people, you know, forced to act in some way, that that perhaps is where it falls down a bit. Um, I'm seeing, you know, and I don't, I can't speak this properly because I don't have any figures in front of me. But I know that the um, the amount of, you know, of fuel reduction burning that the state wanted to do last, uh, leading up to last fire was, um, you know, was was really low. The amount of hectares that they sort of got under their belt was really low and and, and that sort of stuff worries me. I think, you know, it's uh, it's so bureaucratic and so um, top-heavy with um, with process that that it, it creates a real blocker to do it. But then by the same, at the same time, there's a, there's a lot at risk. So... Um, the, I guess it really is a balance that we need to find that, that meets community needs, meets, um, you know, some science needs that uh, people like Justin, you know, support us with um, and, and meets, um, you know, meets sort of country needs too. So finding that balance is hard. And so having the courage to, to have these genuine conversations with people at the state and having the courage to do stuff is um, you know, it's really important. And if I could just add to that, I think you know, from a disciplinary perspective, I think that we've we've got a bit of work to do as well as as architects, because I think we we do have all these skills, but but there is that gap between governance and local people. And you know, there are networks of architects available um, since the fires happened that are offering pro bono services and things like that. And so there's there's a will there, um, but I also think that. Um, people find us expensive and scary as well. And also the offer of a pro bono service, it's, it's kind of ambiguous. It's like, is it the whole, like, as we all know, if, if you're an architect here or, um, or um, you, you know, you work for a firm, um, you know, is it full services, is it partial services, is it the whole thing or is it part of it? And I think that kind of ambiguity when you've just endured, a, you know, a disaster like the fires is, is hard to, to understand. And I think because government are so focused on Re, like the re, they are focused on rebuilding. Um, often disciplines are bypassed. So I think I actually think that we have a bit of work to do in terms of not necessarily always wanting to have things designed and built, but even perhaps offering a bit of a pastoral role. I know, like this morning, we were talking about the complexity of planning and building, and you, with all your knowledge, still had a hard time of it. 
Um, so imagine what it's like for someone without that technical knowledge. So, you know, and we were kind of brainstorming ideas about, you know, a bunch of architects coming in and doing sort of a speed dating session in areas where you're not, there's no agenda, there's no business development agenda, it's just about being there and saying, what, what's your problem at the moment? What can I do? And then leaving and not worrying about it turning into a job necessarily. So, um, and I'm not saying that there are firms that don't think that way and are facilitating um, people who are recovering from the bushfires, you know, there are firms doing that, but I'm just saying as a more sort of robust mainstream approach when these kinds of things happen as well. Looks like there's no other questions. Great, well, thank you so much for joining us. to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.